Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. You've probably noticed a little bit of a, a different type of preaching over the last few weeks. And for those who may not know the difference, uh, normally what we do is preach through books of the Bible. You guys kind of know that because you've been here for a while. We finished preaching through Esther and we're about to start Romans. And so a, a series like this serves as two purposes. We get to address something that may be going on in the world that needs to be uh, preached where we can kind of be thinking rightly and biblically on it, provides opportunity to preach something that's that's unique and timely and uh, faithful to God's Word, but it also provides kind of like a buffer between uh, two big books or two books of the Bible, so we move from one book of the Bible into the next, and you've probably noticed the difference in topical sermons. Uh, they kind of re- require a more systematic approach to the Bible, and so you're doing somewhat what systematic theology does, where it takes titles or takes different topics within the Bible and whatever the Bible says on that particular topic it's kind of like it kind of rises out of the out of the pages of the Bible and then you look at it as a whole and you try to say what does the Bible teach about this particular topic that's what systematic theology is it's a systematized approach at trying to understand what the Bible teaches as a whole topical preaching is similar where you take Bible passages about a particular topic rise them up out of the pages of the Bible and you try to catch the whole And there's difficulties with catching the whole sometimes on a particular topic because of the parts. Meaning, there's not one particular passage in the Bible that tells us everything we need to say about uh, God, marriage, family, sexuality, the role of men and women in the home and the church. There's not one particular passage that we can look at and expose it and it would tell us everything we need to know about all those particular topics. So we have to take a topical approach where we get the... All the Bible verses, we look at them, we kind of try to put it together like a mosaic to understand what the Bible teaches about this particular thing. The risk of missing the whole because of the parts exists in exposition as well. That can happen as you're preaching through books of the Bible where you get so focused on one particular passage that you miss the context, you miss the chapter, you miss the book, you miss the testament, you miss the whole picture of the Bible because you're just focused on this one particular passage. So the challenge of any preaching is to not miss the whole because of the parts. You want to be as faithful as possible. And one of the things I've found difficult as we've been preaching through this this uh, series is wanting just just wanting and longing to be as faithful to the Bible as I can be and not wanting to miss the whole because of the parts. And so I'm trusting as I preach through this series that the Holy Spirit is just doing the exact same thing I want the Holy Spirit to do as I'm walking through books of the Bible is that he would come and work perfectly through imperfect sermons because I'm going to miss some stuff. I'm trying the best I possibly can to preach the Bible as faithfully as I possibly can. But you know what? I'm going to miss some stuff here or there. And that's just the nature of preaching through topical sermons. You're going to miss something. But hopefully the things I do say are as faithful as I can possibly say it according to the Word. So we've been through this series looking at what it means to be human. So the first week we looked at the glory of humanity. The glory of being made in the image of God. Male and female made in the image of God. The glory of humanity. And then what we did is we looked at specific struggles of of humanity, uh, gendered, male and female sins. So we looked at masculine sins and feminine sins. And then we moved forward and we looked at the glory of man. What does it mean to be a man? Not just to be human, but be gifted beyond just being human. What does it mean to be a man? And then last week we looked at what does it look like to be a woman? What does it mean? The glory of the woman. And now this week, we're making another step forward, and we're looking at the role of men. We're moving from the glory of men to the role of men in the home. And then we'll move from the glory of woman to the role of woman in the home. And then we'll do the same thing, role of men in the church and role of women in the church to finish the series. But we're going to start in the exact same chapter as we have the last two weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to look at the first couple verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and then we're going to define, after we look at headship, we're going to define headship, and then we're going to look at a few different passages throughout the New and the Old Testament to help us out. So here's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 3, one simple verse. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. So here's what I mean, simple. So Who's the head of every man? 
Christ. Can't mistake it. Clear. The head of a wife, so not the head, so the head of a wife is her husband, not every man. So who is the head of the wife? The husband. And the head of Christ is God. So who is the head of Christ? God the Father. So these verses, this verse is really clear. There's, there's nothing to mistake about it. It's really clear. The head of every man, every single man in here, you have a head. And that's Jesus. And every wife in here also has a head, her husband. And Christ himself has a head, God the Father. So what does it tell us? What does that tell us? What does verse 3 tell us about headship? Even though the verse is simple, like most of the verses in the Bible, it opens up. It's kind of like Pandora's box. Or it's kind of like Alice going into Wonderland. And you start looking at it, and you press in. And really wonderful and great things pop out. So what is it about headship that's so glorious? First, the head of every man is Christ. What does that tell us? Jesus is the head of every man. Without question, without discussion, every single man in this world, whether they acknowledge Christ as their head or not, every man has a head, and it is Jesus. Therefore, the man is learning headship, learning what headship is from Christ. Every man is learning what headship is from Christ. A Christian man is learning how Jesus took responsibility for his bride and his family, the church. Every Christian man is learning how Jesus took responsibility for his bride and family and the church. Now, this is going to be applicable not just to married men or men with children today. These, these principles are across the board. Every man is learning headship, so learning to take responsibility everywhere he is. Who can I take responsibility for? Can I take responsibility for my neighbors who need help or friends who are in low places? Garth Brooks. I didn't mean to do that. I just said it. So, <clears throat> so every man's learning to take responsibility for his bride because Jesus took responsibility for his bride, the family, the church. Every man is learning how Jesus loved him and has taken care of him. Here's what I mean. Every Christian man understands how great Jesus is, should at least, because they understand that Jesus came to save him. That the true king, the true warrior... The true prophet, true priest and king came to rescue men. Not just ladies. Came to rescue men. You have been saved. You have been forgiven. You have had all of your past accounted for. Jesus was punished in your place for your sins. Therefore, God the Father, the pleasure of God the Father is upon you. We know by experience how great Jesus is. He has loved us and taken care of us. My faithful big brother is the best man I know. And he has loved me well. And he currently, when I mess up, he is not ashamed to be called my brother. When I'm at my worst, he is not ashamed of me. Every man is learning how Jesus lived every moment of every day for our benefit. Jesus lived perfectly every moment of every day, every waking hour. Jesus lived perfectly as the perfect man in our place because we couldn't do it. And every man who knows that Jesus is his covenant head knows that Jesus every moment was lived for him. Jesus didn't live for himself. He lived for you. He's remembering, the man is remembering that Jesus died for him and promised to be with him till the end of the age. I will be with you. From now till the end of the age. And every man knows that. Jesus is with me. I can't shake him. If you're a Christian, you know this. You're stuck with him, whether you like it or not. And your big brother isn't easily annoyed. You may think, how can he deal with me? And he said, I've dealt with you already. Headship for us is defined. The man responds in love to Jesus. The man responds in trust of Jesus and devotion when he knows 
the finished work of Christ. When you understand the finished work of Christ, response should be for men natural. I love him and I want to follow him all the days of my life. Jesus is my king, I'll follow him anywhere. Jesus is mine and I am his. Headship then is defined. It is never self-serving, it is always self-giving. Let me say that again. Headship is not about taking a position of privilege. Headship is a responsibility to bear. It's about living for the good of somebody else. It's always about self-giving, not taking. Headship is not about getting ours. Headship is about giving. Now men, take the cotton balls out of our ears. Take the earwax out. Because headship is not a position of privilege in the way bad men think it is. Bad men hear sermons like this. And they say, honey, listen up. They twist it from the beginning. Bad men take headship and see it as a position of privilege rather than a position of service. Secondly, the head of a wife is her husband. The wife not only has Jesus as her head, because Jesus is the head of the church of which she is a part of, she also has Another gift, her husband. Her husband is to be Christ incarnate for her. Ephesians 5 tells us the relationship between a husband and wife is that of Christ and the church. The husband plays the role of Christ. The wife plays the role of the church. So so men, the head, is to be a representative of Christ to her husband. She has Christ incarnate. And then a second gift, her husband. Three, the head of Christ is God the Father. This shows us clearly the dignity of headship. The dignity of headship. And the dignity of being under a head. It in no way is demeaning for Christ, as he is incarnate on this earth, to be submissive to his heavenly Father. To say, as many modern women and men, unfortunately, both men and women say, that submission is not really a a, a big deal. We are just to submit to one another. And submission really is just kind of this thing that we don't want to talk about or think about. Well, Jesus apparently thought it was noble and worthy, and he came willingly to submit to his heavenly Father as his Father was his head. And so, ladies, as we talk about husbands being the head of the household, it's crucial that you see that Jesus himself had a head. And we don't want to frown at headship lest we turn our eye to Christ and frown at His glorious, powerful submission. Willing submission to His heavenly Father shows us the power and the beauty of submission. Let me just say this, uh, men and women both. If Jesus did not submit to His heavenly Father, you're not saved. That's the power of godly submission. It's not impotent, and it's not wet-noodled, and it's not being in a a position to where you're just demeaned all the time. Godly submission is powerful. So what does a covenant head, or what does a head of household do? What does the head of household do? If the point is established clearly, the husband is the head of the wife, then what does headship in the home look like? What is the role of the family head? Well, I broke it down into five things, and we'll see a couple of these right in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. The covenant head does the following, loves. Headship is defined by love, worship, work, rest, and play. Love, worship, work, rest, and pray. Let's first look at love. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 25. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 25. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as Christ submits to her, as uh, now as the church submits to Christ, should submit to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I will repeat it because it's worth repeating, and Dustin Wright is right over there. 
Uh, Dustin said such a profound thing a couple years ago. He talked about how when we come to passages like this, and I just want you to hear this again because it happens and we just forget it every single week. When it comes to passages like this, here's what happens. When God begins to speak to the wife or to a woman, men start listening. And think, I just wish she would hear this. Wish all these women would get in line. And then when God begins to speak to the man, the man's ears just close up. Oh, I've got that. I've heard it. Got it. It's the real issue. If she would just hear what God says to her, everything would be okay. But then ladies have the tendency for their ears to perk up when God is speaking to the men. So here's the challenge, men. I'll say it again. Hear what God has to say to you. So if your ears are wide open, husband, wives submit to your husbands and everything, and you're thinking, all right. And then when you hear, Husbands, love your wives. And you hear that quieter. And that doesn't pop. You're hearing it wrong. You're hearing it wrong. Husbands, love your wives. How are we to love our wives? Notice that it does not say lead our wives. Isn't that interesting? Does Christ lead the church? Yes, he does. But husbands, set the, exa the example set here is not husbands lead your wives, but husband love your wives. The context of leadership in the home is not one of position, it's one of love. Even though it is a position. It's one of love. We lead by loving. Our first primary responsibility is not step up into leadership, it is step up into love. Love your wives. It's absolutely true that Jesus does lead his bride and headship includes leadership. But leadership in the home has everything to do with that four-letter word love. Love, love, love. If your focus is on loving your wife, you will be leading her well. If your focus is on loving your wife, you will be leading her well. Even if you're not married, love in the home for a man is important. You should be a man of love. In a different way than loving a woman as if she is your wife, you still should be noted, noted as a man of love. A man who knows how and what it looks like to love the church, to care for people, to be a man of strength and empathy. But we're told here specifically about marriage, how are we to love? Love how? Okay, love how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, we have to ask the question, how did Christ love the church? We've heard this time and time again. But so often we forget the love of Christ. How did Christ love the church? Well, two words that come to the surface. He loved the church unconditionally and he loved the church particularly. Jesus loves his bride without condition. Jesus' love, it is not conditioned on the actions of the bride. His love comes to her in spite of her sinful actions. We did not earn Christ's love, nor are we earning it now. Christ's love comes to us in spite of us, not because of our performance, not because he's sitting there waiting, I will love you when you get in line. When you are out of line, the unconditional love of Christ is there for you and upon you. When you're in the gutter, when you know, how, I'm a man who has the Spirit of God, how am I struggling with this again, or how am I in this place again? Are you kidding me? Christ's love is there for you in spite of your performance. How does Christ love his bride unconditionally? How did he love you originally? Unconditionally. None of us are saved, are the bride of Christ because of ourselves. No one is the bride of Christ because of themselves. You are the bride of Christ by grace. God chose you and he has loved you in spite of our sin against him. His love for us is not conditioned. If God's special love of us was because of somehow our special love of him, that's earned. That's not grace. Grace is unearned. It comes to us in spite of our horrible decisions. God's love can't be stopped by our sin. 
He comes to us in spite of our sin. That's how He loves His bride. And that's how husbands are commissioned to love their bride. In spite of anything she is doing, that's how a head of household lives and exists. He, the man, experiences God's grace and then gives God's grace to everyone around him. Unconditionally. Well, she doesn't deserve it. So, you don't deserve the love of God. Well, she's not earning it. So, you didn't earn Jesus' love. Yet, he's given it. Jesus loves his bride without condition. Husbands, there is never a condition in which Christ stops loving his bride. There is never a condition by which Christ stops loving his bride. Never. We have the privilege and responsibility to do likewise. We lead by loving. So if you have kids, your kids should know how much you love their mother and how much you love them. Little boys growing up in a home with a mother who is loved and respected will turn into a man who loves and respects women. Men, if you respect your wives and teach your sons to do likewise, they will be men who grow up and they aren't toxic. They're actual men who love women the right sort of way. Love and Protects, protect. And then, not just unconditionally, particular love. Jesus does not love everyone the same way. Uh, he doesn't. He does not love everyone the same way. And men, neither should you. You shouldn't love everyone the same way. You should have particular love for people in your life that are closer to you. Specifically with your wife. You should not love your wife the way you love every other woman. The whole basis of husband's love for his wife, the whole example is laid out like this. Jesus doesn't love everyone the same way. He loves everyone, but not the same way. We are to love our wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her in a particular way. It doesn't say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves every way and gave, gave everyone and gave himself up for everyone in the exact same way. Particular love is the commission of husbands. Because particular love is what we see in Christ. I promise your wife would not feel loved if you love her the same way you love every other woman. You're called to know her specifically and love her specifically. Because Christ knows and loves and saves his bride specifically. Jesus is not obligated to love everyone. He's not obligated to love anyone. He doesn't have to love anybody. And yet, particularly, he has loved you. And Christian men should know this more than anybody in the world. Christian men and women who have been saved know the particular love of Jesus. He's not obligated to love anybody. But in love, God the Father chose a bride for his son, and Jesus came to get her. And like I said, to be sure, Jesus does love everyone. But it's a blatant disregard to Scripture to say that he loves everybody the same way. Because he doesn't. And neither should you. You should love your wife. Your attention should be on her, husbands, more than any other woman in the world. We have eyes for one woman. That is the foundation of a husband's love for his wife. Love our wives specially and specifically. So men in the home, our role, this covenant headship, this head of household of that happens within the home, men in the home, our role, our first and primary role is to love. And everything, everything in the home flows from love. Everything. Secondly, worship. So number one, head, the head of household, the head in marriage leads with love. Two, worship. What does a, what does a head do? Worships. Look at chapter 6 in Ephesians, verse 4. We talked about this verse last week with baby dedications. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Okay, so don't provoke. Do raise them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So men are responsible to teach our kids. Not exclusively, this does not ex exclude our wives from doing this, but it is explicit. 
meaning this is what you're called to. Raise your children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in it. Discipline them and instruct them in the Lord. Evangelism for the man who has children is not first in the streets of any city. It isn't first in his workplace or his neighborhood. A man who has evangelistic zeal sees his evangelistic zeal come out first and foremost with his unsaved children. The training ground for those who are not evangelistically gifted, they, they don't have the gift of evangelism or men that feel uncomfortable talking to other people about Christ, the training ground for you to become a better evangelist is in the home. And then when your children become Christians, the front lines of spiritual warfare of the battleground in your life is still the home. The epicenter of discipleship is your home. And before you feel bad that you're not discipling other people, or you're not doing this or that, are you discipling your kids? Because that's your first priority. When your kids become a Christian, the best way you can invest in this church is invest in your home. And the enemy hates that. The enemy hates the home. He knows how important the home is. That's why the best minds in our country and in our world can't even tell us what a family is. The enemy hates the home, and the home has been under attack. But we raise our kids up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We do this by understanding that all of life, we see all of life through the lenses of Christ. How do we raise our kids up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord? Is this simply sitting with a book open and then instructing them and, and catechesis? And, and those things are really good and well. But catechesis alone is not what this is talking about. It is, to be sure, a good part of raising up kids in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Family worship, for instance, we'll get to that in a second. It is a good thing, but for us, we need to, by God's grace, see all of life through the lenses of Christ. Everything. Everything that we take in with media, everything that we see in our world, when we see somebody being mistreated at school, we get to teach them, how, what does Christ have to think about this? What does God's word have to teach us about how to conduct ourselves to outsiders? Christ, after all, is the one in whom all things were created and through whom all things exist. He is before all things and in him all things are held together. I've said this, I think, to you before, but for the Christian, mathematics, it's not just mathematics. A non-Christian cannot teach math like Christians can teach math. They simply don't have the framework. They don't have the worldview. A non-Christian can tell you why 2 plus 2 equals 4 all the time. A Christian can. Because God created an orderly universe. And logic and reason matter. It's what it means to be human is to know and think through law and natural law and how God designed this universe to work. And 2 plus 2 is always 4 because God made this universe to work. A non-Christian cannot teach about biology. A non-Christian cannot teach about science or history the way a Christian can. Because Christians know the joke. History is whose story? History is his story. A historian who doesn't know God does not have the worldview to look back with lenses and see the activity of God down through the ages. But the Christian looks back at history and says, Son, daughter, look at what God has done. And look at where we are now. And you know what? God's still going to be in control tomorrow. There's no such thing as, there's no such thing as uh, just flat stats or teaching. Yes, a non-Christian can teach that 2 plus 2 is 4, but he doesn't or she doesn't know why. The Christian does. We teach our children such things. When we see the solar eclipse coming back around in 2022, or a beautiful sunset, we tell them whose idea that was. We teach them that God, God's ways are higher than our ways. So son, if you want to figure everything out, if your goal in life is to understand everything, you're never going to reach that goal. We teach them when we come to God's word, son, th there's going to be some things that's going to be hard to reconcile, but whatever God says goes. We teach them about heaven and hell. We teach them about 
decisions they make having consequences. We teach them about how to live life. We teach them about the worship of the God of the universe. When we come together on the Lord's Day, why do we come week in and week out? Why is God's people important to us? We, we teach them such things. Men have to understand God's word and God's world. And when we go out on a walk with our kids through our neighborhood, we, you know how people have the ability to build houses? Because God teaches men and women how to build houses. Isn't that cool? Isn't that neat? Look at the order in that building and the bricks and the lines. And if, if, if it wasn't for God, we couldn't do stuff like this. Thank God we can. Family worship. Some of the ways that we can worship in our home, we can lead as a head of the household, is family worship. Before bed, gather together. Just gather together before bed. You know, I think I've shared this, again, maybe with you before, but often for us, this includes old-time rock and roll, Tom Petty. My dad loves Tom Petty, old-time rock and roll, where our boys love it. And so we play old-time rock and roll, and we jump around the house. Or we read. We read about Buck the Dog. We just finished up. Call of the Wild, Jack London. And a part of family worship for us is teaching our children why it's important to read. Why it's important to learn. And so we gather together, we read, and I act like Buck the Dog or like and I'm pulling a sleigh. And we gather together as a family and then we pray. We ask, what, what prayer requests? What are some things we can celebrate today? It's not the exact same every night. But family worship is a priority. That's what headship looks like. Takes responsibility when the house is crazy to say, you know what, even this family worship, it might be crazy, but we're still going to do this. When your kids grow up and they get out of the house, this still can be a mark of your home. Honey, before bed, we're going to open the Bible. Or first thing in the morning, we're going to open the Bible together and just pray for one another. It doesn't have to be something huge. It doesn't have to be something every single, every single day with an ordered liturgy to it. But do it. Get them. Do more than just get them in church. And man, let me just tell you this. Don't just get them in church because if you just get them into a church that they like, they're going to grow up and just tolerate church and then get their, go to a church where they can get their kids in a church that the kids like. Do we really want to go generation after generation of bored parents in a local assembly? At least their kids are having a good time. They're going to grow into parents who are bored also. That's not a win. Men, let's not get over the grace of God. We want our kids to be young men and women who grow up and they're in awe of the grace of God. They're not just at a church where they're tolerating it because they need their kids to be in church. So we're here. That's not a win. It's a vicious generational cycle. Family worship can look, at, look like worship at dinner time. Uh, we started this thing. I went out, when I went out to Utah, I was sitting down, and I could not believe my ears. I was sitting here, and it was a table blessing. And the father of the home, my friend Brian, began to speak these blessings out over his family. And after each blessing spoken, the family would say, Amen. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Like, I've got to do this. So we've been doing this at dinner time or at bedtime. Here's what it looks like. And I made my own. I made a variation of a few Bible verses. You can do this, men. Here's what I say to my sons. May the Lord arm you with strength and make your ways perfect. Make your feet like the feet of a deer and set you up in high places, ruling for the glory of God and for the good of others. And then me and my wife say, Amen. And I turn to my wife and I say to my wife, Who is this who looks forth in the morning? Fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners. Many daughters have done well, but you exceed them all. And a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And me and my boys, Valor can't yet, but... Me and Randy, amen. And then to the family, to our family, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. And the family says, and the family says, amen. These things don't take a ton of preparation. It takes intentionality, men. Do you love your kids? Do you love your family? Do you love your friends? you love your neighbors? Be the kind of man who is thinking about blessings you can speak over people. Also, under worship includes protection. Raising them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord includes providing protection and safety. In Christ, our salvation is safe. We are secure 
We don't need to fear because God will somehow, it's like God's going to lose us or something. Or that somehow we will overpower him. Men provide safe homes for their family. Safe and secure. We do not add unnecessary fear to our children. Let me just say this. It's not funny. Sometimes it's fun to jump out and scare your kid. You know what I mean? But it's not funny to scare your kids. To where your kids are scared. That's not funny. We protect them. We don't provoke them to anger. We get to provide a safe and secure. In Christ, are we safe? Yes. In our home, are our children safe? Yes. The family should be and feel safe when we are around, men. When we're around, the family should feel safe. Number three, work. So first, ahead, loves and leads in worship. Third, work. Exodus chapter 20. Verse 8 through 11, right there in the Ten Commandments. Verse 8 through 11, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. 1 Timothy 5.8, we're told that men who don't provide for their household, especially those of the household of faith, are worse than, they've denied the faith, and they're worse than unbelievers. So not only do men work outside of the home, but hear me, men, this is, this is crucial, men also work inside of the home. Men also are called to work inside of the home. Six days you shall work does not mean that home is a retreat for you, where we do no work. Home is a place of work. In fact, it should be the place of our best work. The wife is the one primarily responsible for the home. But we are to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Therefore, we do everything we can to ensure we make things better, not harder for our wives at home. I had to apologize to my wife this week because of a few things that I do. Our wives should not have to clean up after us all the time. Wives, you can amen if you want. If we love them, we can show them that housework is is not work that's somehow below us. Home is where we train our sons and daughters how to take care of what God has given us. Home is where we train them. When God gives us something, we are to be good stewards of it. If we have it within our home, in our garage, wherever, when our kids have toys, we teach them how to be good stewards of what God has given them. We train them to do this. We should be teaching our sons and daughters how to maintain a car, how to change a tire, how to defend ourselves when it's necessary to stand against a bully. And sons need to know when it's honorable to throw a punch and when it's dishonorable to throw a punch. I heard one person say, you can't turn another cheek if you don't have a cheek to turn. Turn the other cheek is not a blatant statement. When Jesus said that, it's not a blatant statement of Christian pacifism. Christians are not called to be pacifists. We know when to turn the other cheek, but we also know when to clench a fist and protect those who need to be protected. God made men strong to protect, not to harm. And we need to know when to use our strength. Well, dads need to teach our sons that. Our daughters need to know what a godly man is, and they need their daddy to protect them and show them the kind of man she wants to one day marry. How wonderful would it be, fathers, if you have daughters, I do not have that privilege. If you have a daughter, grew up, I want to marry a man just like my dad. Your sons growing up, ladies, how wonderful it would be if your sons growing up they say, I want to marry a woman just like my mom. You know what? I want my sons to be better men than me. I want that for them. But what I don't want is them growing up and say, I don't want to be like my dad.
So work at home. Rest. The head of household teaches the family how to rest. Exodus 8 through 11. We, we teach our kids how to rest. Six days you shall work, you shall rest on the Sabbath. We know as good Protestants, even though we have some Protestants that are Sabbatarians, I am not personally. I think we used to have some people in our church that were. We believe ultimately, and all Protestants believe, that Sabbath is a person. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our Sabbath, but the Sabbath principle remains. And for the husband, for the, for the father, for the head of that household, we need to make rest a priority. We need family days. We simply enjoy God, enjoy one another. If you have two days off or one day off a week, I know some people, because of work, find a few hours where you know these few hours or this half a day is our time together. This is our family day. This is our family night. Make time to rest, plan trips, vacations. Being a workaholic is not honorable. A workaholic receives praise from everyone except his family and Jesus. Everybody else talks about their diligence. Everybody else talks about their hard work. Boy, that man would give his shirt off his back to anybody. If you want somebody to work overtime, old Bill will do it. While the husband or the wife at home and the kids at home are just pleading, will you be there for us? The hurt workaholic is a dishonorable man, not an honorable man. It's just so hard to see because everybody's praising him for it. Rest. We teach our kids. Refusal to rest is a surefire way to crush the people around you. Showing people that rest equals weakness sets people up. For a life always working, always running, always feeling guilty if they have to take a nap. Play. Fifth, play. The head of the house teaches the family about play. God is a God of feasting. The Old Testament is full of this. Feasts established to remember the work of God, the salvation of God. Feasts is where it's at. We're headed towards a feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. God loves a feast, and he commands his people to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, rejoice. We are commanded to have fun and to play and to feast and enjoy the work of God. We're commanded every single week or every time when we gather, we, we come together around a feast, a meal that helps us remember the salvation of God. We come to the table. We come to a table here at our church every single week to eat and remember and to receive joy. And so for a, a gathering of us, if, it's not, if it, a gathering does not include celebration, we're doing it wrong. Joy, play, fun. God is not a fuddy-dud. God is not boring. And he doesn't command us to be solemn and boring men. Boring men need an encounter with God. Bored men need an encounter with God. Men who don't know how to play are living less than what it means to be a man. Woven into what it means to be God's people is to play. God is a God of feasting. He's commanded his church every, every time when we gather, eat this meal. Joyful communion is remembering the work of Christ and that we're no longer enemies of God. What else, when we come to the table and we eat and we drink, when we remember, I'm not an enemy of God, what else is supposed to happen inside of us? An explosion of joy. You're not an enemy of God anymore, men. You belong to God. And there's joy for us at the table. God has given us a seat at his table, a place at the table of God. We're headed toward that, that dinner, that marriage supper of the Lamb. Eat and drink your fill with laughter and joy. I love in Luke 24, there's a really interesting, we, we hear about the playfulness of Jesus, and Ryan reminded me of this a while back. But in Luke 24, there's a really interesting passage where Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, is kind of explaining the, the scriptures to this, these two disciples. He's walking with them, and he's explaining to them everything in the scriptures concerning himself. It's like this huge exposition of all the Old Testament saying, hey, in Genesis, here's where I am. In Exodus, here's where I am. In Leviticus, here's where I am. In Numbers, here's where I am. In Deuteronomy, here's where I am. Hey, you see all of this? It's all about me. 
And isn't that good? Isn't it good when you read through Leviticus in your yearly Bible reading and you just feel like a glass of water? Doesn't it make you cry out for good news? You read the law of God and you're like, my goodness, can we get to some good news? That's how you're supposed to feel. My goodness, this is overburdened. I can't do this. You're right. You can't do this. And you read it, and then right in Leviticus, and right in God's law, you see glimpses because you see sacrifice, and you see blood spilled, and animals whose throat is slit, and the blood pours out on the table, and the scapegoat runs free, and you're reminded, oh, there is Jesus and his love for me. And here is Jesus walking in the road to Emmaus and explaining, hey, that was about me, that's about me, and their hearts are burning within them as Jesus is opening up to the scriptures to them. And Jesus does something so interesting that helps us understand his personality in such a wonderful way. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is the Jesus that we're becoming like. In Luke 24, look at verse 27 to 29. I love it. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, stay with us, stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now, now verse, rightly, 27, gets all the attention in chapter 27, or much of the attention, and rightly so. Jesus is telling us, hey, in all the scriptures, you, if you look, and the Holy Spirit moves upon you, you'll see me. You'll see me here, and your heart by the scriptures being opened up and us seeing Christ in it, will burn within us as well. And it should burn within you and I as well. But then Jesus, after he does all this, he acts as if he's going to walk along further. And it's intentional. He wants them. He's baiting them. He's setting the bait for them. And so Jesus is walking, and it's like this. All right, guys, see you later. i got to keep going. I gotta, I'm walking on. I'll see you guys later. And what it induces in those disciples is a response. No, Jesus, hey, hey, wait, 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 it's late. We, come, 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 come with us, stay. They still don't know yet that this is Jesus, but they say, hey, please, still, still come. Come, stay with us. It's dark. And then in verse 31, their eyes are open and they recognize them. The whole point is Jesus is literally acting. He's acting. He's playful with them. His acting is with intention to induce a response within them. You know, the character of Jesus is not flat. It's full and rich. He is the person of all persons, the men of all men. He knows how to start a fight and to finish one. He knows how to play with kids, and he knows how to be a play actor. This Jesus is a renaissance man of all renaissance men, the truest of all men, and he's ours. He acted as if. Now notice how Jesus did this. Jesus the actor. Men, have some fun for goodness sake. Have some fun. Don't be serious all the time. Have fun. Is that a characteristic of your life? Fun? Play? I'm not talking about your hobbies. If you have to do your hobbies to have fun, you're not living life right. Hobbies aren't bad. But are you bored all the time? Have some fun. Have some fun with your wife. Have some fun with your kids. Have some fun with your friends. Have some fun with your neighbors. Live life. God has not put us here to be boring men the rest of our lives. Have some fun for goodness sake. We don't have to be boring and grumpy. So men, how do we respond? Because there's been a lot of shoulds in this sermon. A lot of should, you should, meet, we should. There's been a lot of shoulds. And what comes with a lot of shoulds can be, again, condemnation. Yep, I should be and I'm not. And mopey men mope. So instead of feeling challenged, they mope. You're right. I'm a bum. Okay, well, keep your head up. You're more than a bum, for goodness sake. Yeah. 
We are to model Jesus to our families. I want to say a phrase and explain it. Men, we model Jesus to the family as we trust in Jesus to be Jesus to us and our family. And let me expose that phrase. We model Jesus to our families. The way we live our life, we're doing everything we can to model who is Jesus to the church. That's who I'm going to be to my wife and to my kids. I'm going to model Jesus in the home. The fully flavored, real, authentic, strong Jesus, that's the man I want to be. And I'm going to model it to my family. But then we don't stop there. Because if we just model Jesus to our family, we will be crushed. Because you're not Jesus, and neither am I. And the best of us fall short. So if all we do from the sermon is say, okay, I am going to pick up my bootstraps, and I am going to go out, and I am going to do better. I'm going to do better, by golly, this week. I'm going to make my list, check it twice, and this week is going to be better than next week, and, and, and I'm going to be the best man that I can be this week. And you may be a little bit better, but eventually, if all you see yourself is, the Christ, is Christ in the home, you will be crushed because there's no trust involved. There's no faith involved in that. So we model Jesus to the family as we trust in Jesus. So as we trust in Christ to be Christ for us and our families. So as we're living like Jesus, we are looking to Jesus to be our covenant head. We are trusting in him. We are in Christ. We are men who have been saved and redeemed. I am the Lord's. I am forgiven. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go. And you know what? I'm going to take that hill. And I'm going to fight for my family. But I'm going to look at Jesus the whole way. And I'm going to trust in him. And I know that it's because of him that I'm a saved man. I'm a forgiven man. And I know it's because of him that I have him in me. And I'm going to fight for my family. And I'm going to fight for my friends. I'm going to fight for my church. I'm going to fight for my city. And we're going to look to him all the way. And then we trust Jesus to be Jesus to our families. Because here's the deal. You and I can't save our families. And you and I can't comfort our wives and our children or our friends or our neighbors in the way Jesus can. And if you get a savior complex from a sermon like this and think that you are the savior, you also will crush people. Because you will demand their allegiance to you. You will demand their allegiance to you as if you are their savior. And you are no one's savior. And neither am I. We are men who have a Savior, following our Savior, knowing that He will be the Savior to our family. Our families need to know that Jesus is Lord. That He is Lord, not us. Our families need to know that Jesus reigns here. And that we look, kids looking at their father know that their Heavenly Father is even better than my father, and that's amazing. Don't trust in yourself, men. Trust in Christ. And then, by God's grace, live like Him in our homes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for being so amazing. Thank You for Your kindness to us. And Lord, help us help us to be the best men that we can possibly be. Uh, we want to be Christ-like. And we want to love our wives well, we want to love our kids well, we want to love our neighbors well, our family well, our cities well, co-workers well. And we need your help to do it. Jesus, thank you for your grace that's upon us. Holy Spirit, move. Help us to, help us to respond to you. I trust that you will. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.